Good morning. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verses 12 through 17. We'll actually start, we'll read verses 1 and 2 of the chapter, then skip down to to verse 12 to give context. If you remember from, I think we picked up, we left off of this a couple weeks ago, or if you're new and you haven't been here for some of the services, we are following the story of Israel, or the children of Israel, descendants of a man named Israel, who God had chosen and made a covenant with that he would bless them and that he would take special care of them. Then they got enslaved in Egypt, and God said, in order to keep my promise, I must free them. So he went down to Egypt and confronted the Egyptians with their idols and Pharaoh, freed his people, destroyed their enemies, brought them through the wilderness, and brought them to what was called Mount Sinai. It's a mountain in the desert. And on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses a covenant to give to the people, a new covenant, where if they would obey his law, he would protect, he would take care of them. He'd be a father to them. They agreed. And so in chapter 20, you have what we call the Ten Commandments, and it's the official agreement, the, the terms of the covenant, and it sums up everything else you read in the Old Testament. So everything from here forward uh, for the, the prophets and the rest of Deuteronomy is contained here in the Ten Commandments. So we start in, verse, in chapter 20, and verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment and the preface, and the rest of them follow from that, but we'll pick up in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not, uh, it says murder, but it should say kill, so just mark out murder and put kill. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And so that is the second half of the Ten Commandments. A couple weeks ago we talked about the first half. Ten Commandments can be divided into two parts. The first part is your relationship with God, and the second part is your relationship with man. And as we saw in the, the text we read this morning, the whole law can be summed up this way. Everything else you read in the, New, the Old Testament, the 600-plus laws, can be summed up in love God, love your neighbor. So we're going to talk about today is loving your neighbor. This passage is going to show us we are to love our neighbor because they're in the image of God. And we're to show them God. But our hearts are self-centered and idolatrous. For this reason, Jesus came and loved our neighbor for us and then died as a hateful idolater for us, giving us a clean slate and a heart to love our neighbor. It's a lot, and we'll see how it goes because I think I bit off more than I could chew on this one. Most of the preachers I've been reading about took one sermon per commandment. I'm doing Ten Commandments and two sermons. They all did ten sermons, so we'll see how it goes. But what I want to do is I want to look at this commandment, look at these, these six commandments, and what they meant for Israel, because that's who they were written for, to Israel. And then we're going to look in the New Testament at a passage called the Sermon on the Mount, a different mountain, 
where, it, where Jesus gives an expository sermon on these commandments. And we're going to see that though we're not under the covenant, we're not under this law, it's not because this law isn't right or good. It's only because we couldn't keep it. So sometimes we may stray too far and say, well, we're not under the Ten Commandments, we're under grace. Yes, but only because we couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. So when we go back and look at the Ten Commandments, it's not to say, well, they don't matter anymore. It's to say that that's what should have happened, but didn't. But God still wants these sort of big moral laws to be kept because they're good and they're right. And it's only because we can't keep them that Jesus comes, but it doesn't mean that we don't care anymore. And so that's why it's so important to go back and look at what God has always wanted. So here's what God wants in this, this section. He wants you to love your neighbor. He wanted Israel to love her neighbor. In the covenant, in chapter 19 of verse 6, he says, when he gives the terms, he said, if you agree to this covenant, this special relationship, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special people to me, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. That was God's intention for Israel, to be a kingdom of priests and a kingdom that is holy. Two things there. He wanted them to be a certain way, and he wanted them to do something. He wanted them to be holy. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see that God created Adam and Eve in his image. That's what he's trying to get Israel back to, the image of God. And then he says, I want you to take what you've learned from me, about the image of God, and I want you to show it to the rest of the world. I want you to be a priest. So Israel was supposed to be a priest to the rest of the world who were outside. So they had, a, they had a role here to be a certain way and to show something. And so that's what the Ten Commandments are going to do. A holy nation and a kingdom of priests. So we're going to go through these six commandments and look at them at both those angles, uh, how it shows the image of God and how it shows the priestly role. And there's a lot you can say about these. That's one thing I realized as I was studying it. Since they sum up the entire law, there's so much in there that you can't get to it. So you could spend a lot of time in this. Uh, you could spend a sermon per commandment or your life on them. So we're going to just look at some sort of meditations on these and how they, they play out in the context of Israel. So look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. It's Father's Day. And you know how I like to have services based on American holidays. <laughs> I didn't plan this, but God wanted us to celebrate Father's Day. He would bring me to the text at the right time, and here it is. So honor your father and your mother. Now, we have to be careful here. It says that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That's not for us, because... God didn't promise this land. He promised Israel land. So when we read this, there's an eternal principle here about, about a family relationship. There's a specific promise that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord is going to give to you, which was the land of Israel. That, that's gone. We're, we're past that point in history. So it's important to understand that the promise was given to Israel. And I know it says in Ephesians in the New Testament that it's the first commandment with promise. It's not transferring the promise. It's just pointing out how important it is. But honor your parents your father and your mother, which is so radically counterculture at this time in history because mothers, women, never got the same honor as men, except in the Bible. So when people tell you that the Bible is a product of sort of ancient culture, that's not true at all because for an ancient person to read that they were to honor their mother 
and their father together was unheard of. But again, who did God create man in the image of? He created the male and female in the image of God. So, of course, you have to honor them the same because he created both in the image of God. So it says, honor your father and mother. Honor means to give weight, to give respect, to give glory to. In fact, it's used of God often. The word honor is give honor to God. Why? Why honor your parents? Now, parents have a reason for it, don't we? Yeah, we want kids to do what we say. Well, that's a selfish reason. But why does the Bible say it? Well, first of all, where did you get your image from? See, God has designed that he created Adam with his own hands, but then he creates people from their parents. So when we are in the image of God, one of the ways we honor the image of God is to honor the people who gave it to us. So when you look to your parents, however much you don't like them, they are in the image of God, and they were the vessel for you to get your image. So to dishonor your parents is to dishonor yourself. Now, it's hard sometimes because parents and children have a sort of notoriously bad relationship sometimes. God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care what we think about our parents. He says, here's what I think about your parents. I created them in my image, and you came from them. So give them the duty, give them the weight that comes from being in the image of God. But more importantly, it reflects something about reality. God is a father. Jesus is a son. So when it says, honor your father and mother, that's because Jesus honors his father. See, you can't be like God if you don't act like God. If not just act like God, but understand the same things that God understands. So when Jesus was on this earth, he honored his father because that's the way the world works. Not just the created world, but the ultimate world. And so he says here, you want to be in the image of God? Here's what God does. Here's who God is. Now, often parents fall short, but that's not to say that the relationship is not based on God's relationship of a father and a son, of parents and children. Now, of course, that says to you as a father, you're made in the image of God, so act like it. You want to know what a father looks like? Look at God. And when you see how short you fall, you realize, man, a lot of work to be done here. You want to, as a child, how should I treat my father? How should I treat my mother? Look at Jesus. Not my will, but yours. He gave honor. He gave glory. He spoke well of his father and his mother. Even on earth, Jesus was with Joseph and Mary. He submitted to them. Now, of all the parent-child relationships that shouldn't have worked, it's God on the earth with two human parents. And yet, what did Jesus do? He honored them. One of the last things Jesus did on the cross was care for his mother. So if you've got older parents, honor them. And honor means money sometimes. It definitely means care. Just as Jesus cared for his mother, so we care for ours. The Pharisees didn't get this, did they? They said, oh, the money I was going to give to you, parents, that's a gift to God. And Jesus condemned them for it. Parents, we don't like them when we're young because they tell us what to do. We don't like them when they're old because we have to take care of them. That's, that's how the world works, isn't it? Yet what God is saying here is that's ungodly. That's anti-God. Godly children honor their parents, both as young people and as older people. 
And this, so that's the image of God that this reflects, but it's also a role that they're supposed to share outward. So they're a kingdom of priests. So they're supposed to take this concept and share it to people who don't know. They're to show that honoring a parent, honoring parents is, a, is the model for a stable society. You see, the world was going to look at Israel and say, Israel works. Their society works. Why? Well, first reason is their family structure is intact. They honor the family. They honor the parent-child relationship. And so the rest of the world says, that's interesting how they do that. Let's learn more about that. And Israel is going to say, we would love to tell you more about that. We'll be a priest because God spoke to us. Now we'll speak to you. Israel showed the primacy of the family. And it was to show it to the rest of the world. So let me just defend you right off the bat. You know why America is not a Christian nation? Because we dishonor the family. And that didn't start in the 60s. That started in, say, 1660s. See, America is built on taking families away from families. It's called the slave trade. America, the nation, began by splitting families apart. They actively took fathers and mothers and children and pulled them apart, brought them overseas, and then sold them off. You can deny it, we can ignore it, but it's still the foundation of America, splitting families up. But it didn't stop there. We did to the Native Americans. In the 1800s, we split Native American families apart. We put them on reservations. We killed them. We split them apart. Uh, we, we attacked their villages with women and children. It didn't stop there either. In the 1940s, we did it to the Japanese. We put them in internment camps. And you say, well, I didn't do that. No, you personally didn't do that. Thankfully, we weren't alive at that point. But America did it. And so let's take responsibility for the country that we say we're a part of. But guess what? It's still happening, isn't it? I just looked at the news this week, and I see American officials splitting families apart. Where's the honor of the father and mother? You say, well, that's the law. I see a higher law here, a higher law that says, if you are a Christian, you seek not only to honor your own parents, but to teach other people how to honor the family. You don't do that by splitting families apart. And if America doesn't get a grip on the fact that our history is full of splitting families apart, not to mention abortion, which just kills the children, that's our culture. It has been for hundreds of years. If we don't get a grip on that, we can't understand who God is. Now, America's never going to get it. Let me just warn you. Because America is not God's people. But the church can get it. And the church can speak as a priest and as a prophet to the rest of the world. But then it goes on. Don't kill. Now it says murder in some translations, but that's too specific. The word kill here, there's about eight words in Hebrew that can say kill. But this one means you don't kill when you're not supposed to. It does talk about killing animals. That's not what it's talking about. There's other words to use for killing animals. There's other words for when the government kills or for when you kill in war. This is talking about killing another person without authorization. Now, murder, that's included, but murder's too, uh, that's too much intention there. Murder is sort of like, I don't like you, I want to kill you. What this is saying is not just don't murder, but you need to value life. Now, why would you value life? Because it's made in the image of God. All life is made in the image of God. So you value all life, whatever situation you're in. You value life and you protect it. See, there's, there's where God's law is different. It's not just don't kill. 
It's don't do things that lead to killing. There's a law in the Old Testament that expounds on this. It says when you build a house, you need to put a wall around the rooftop. Now, why? Well, if you've ever seen roofs over in the Middle East, they're all flat, and you can walk up and stand on them. But if there's no wall around the edge, what happens? Have you ever stood on a deck, if you're ever building a deck and you stand without a railing? It's dangerous, isn't it? So, if you, so the Bible says if you build a house and you don't put a, a wall around it and someone falls off, guess who's guilty? The home builder. You're guilty. Why? Because you didn't protect life. You put, a, you put people into a situation where they were able to be killed. That's a much higher standard, isn't it? It's not simply don't murder. We're like, well, none of us murder people. Yes, but do you value life? Do you protect life? Do you contribute to a society that makes killing people a bad thing in all situations? Sometimes we don't like county codes and things, but the concept's good. Don't do things that hurt other people. This can apply to abortion. And you say, well, I don't know when a, a, a fetus is a person. No, when is it a human life? And from what I can study, it's at least within the first two weeks of conception, for sure. It's a human life. Value life. Don't eliminate life. Don't contribute to eliminating life. Now, how do people end up murdering other people? This is one of the principles that you learn in the Army and other places. In order to get people to kill people, they must hate them. They must dehumanize them. The military does a good job of it. You can't kill someone, really, until you've dehumanized them. Now, there's different ways to dehumanize people. You can dehumanize them by making their race a problem, by making their economic status a problem, by making their nationality a problem. Now, we don't do that, right? Here's the thing. If you make racial jokes, you're breaking this commandment. Because racial jokes dehumanize people, which allows other people to create a culture where they can kill them. If you uh, tear people down with your words, you're lowering their life status, which makes it easier to kill them. You see how comprehensive this is? But can you imagine a society where people value life? So Israel was supposed to be a, li- a, a people who provided a safe land, a safe community to live in. Didn't matter if you were old. Didn't matter if you had terminal illness. You still weren't killed. Because your value is not based on what you contribute to society. It's based on how you were created. That's why euthanasia is wrong. That's why assisted suicide is wrong. That's why suicide is wrong. Suicide's wrong because you are viewing your life in relation to other people as opposed to in relationship to God. Now, how are we contributing to that? So Israel was supposed to show the rest of the world, which was barbaric and hateful, a land where people were valued as God's people. And to show as priests what God thought of people. How God views people. And how does God view people? With dignity. Because they're created in his image. And so Israel was supposed to do that. Continues on. You can see how he's kind of working through. You have your sort of your basic family structure, mother and father. Then you've got your sort of relationship with people, just in general, humanity. But then he goes on, you should not commit adultery. Now we're talking about a different kind of family. Don't commit adultery. Why not? Because it's pretty common from what I can tell, and it always has been. Because your spouse was created in the image of God. 
And committing adultery is one of the very best ways to devalue somebody. It's saying to your spouse, you don't matter. This other person matters. So you say, I don't, you're not really the image of God as much as this other person is. So adultery devalues your spouse. It also devalues marriage. It devalues sexuality. It reduces everything to what you can get out of it. Why is pornography wrong? Because you're using people. People made in God's image are having to be abused for your sake. That's terrible. What about the, the, the sort of casual flirtation that you have with the people at work? That's wrong. They're not there for your entertainment. You have a spouse. There's marriage in general. People are not to be used or to be valued. And adultery devalues people. Any sort of immorality devalues people. And it devalues God's covenant faithfulness. See, God said to Israel, you are my wife. Calls him that later. And he models this sort of absolute faithfulness no matter what. And Israel was supposed to model that in their own family life. And they were supposed to show it to the rest of the world. They were supposed to show them a group of people who protected society and protected the family and teach God's radical commitment to his covenant. God said, I don't care if you cheat on me, I'll never cheat on you. That's radical. There's a book in the Bible called Hosea where there's an example of a woman who's bought out of prostitution and married, goes back into prostitution, and what does the husband do? He goes and buys her back as an example of how God treats his people. That's what Israel was supposed to share with the rest of the world, but they didn't. They devalued marriage, they devalued sexuality, and as a result, they devalued people. They marred the image of God. But it's not just about relationship, it's about, also about property. You shall not steal. This is a little bit different, isn't it? Because now we're not talking about people anymore. We're talking about stuff. How does God's image work with stuff? You respect people's work. You see, you as an image bearer, when you work, you're carrying out the work of God. God created, you create. And when you create, you get things for it. You get possessions. When someone steals or when you steal someone else's work, you're saying, you don't matter. I just want your stuff. Image bearers don't matter, but stuff matters. And let's just make it, let's bring it bottom level. If you pirate stuff or if you steal stuff off the internet, that's the same thing. It's all the same. You're saying, I don't care that you work for it. It's free for me. Uh, they say, like, it's one of the most, you know, victimless crimes. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. It's a crime against humanity, if, as it were. It's saying people don't matter, only their stuff does. And really, only I matter because I want their stuff. But God gave those people those things. You see, what we have is a gift from God. And when you take it from somebody else, you're saying, God can't give me enough, so I'm going to take what he gave to other people. But it also shows that God cares about ownership. You know, one of the reasons that God went down and killed all the Egyptians is because they stole the Israelites. They stole them. He said, they're not your people. They're my people. And if you take them from me, I'm going to kill you. That's radical ownership, isn't it? And so when we reflect that, when, when mankind reflects that, God says you can own things. can't own people. That's wrong. But you can own stuff, and people can't take that from you because God owns things. Of course, the priestly aspect was what? God owns everything. 
So Israel was supposed to say, just like you shouldn't steal from other people, like we don't steal in our country, you also shouldn't steal from God. And since God owns everything, you give God everything. And it creates a safe workplace. You see, you steal from your employer when you don't work hard all day because you got paid for all day. Oops. You mean that time I spent on Facebook was stealing? Yes. But it wasn't a big deal. I don't see any qualifications here. It just says you shall not steal. Not you shall not steal a lot. Employers, do you take advantage of your workers? That's stealing. We steal from the government. The government steals from us. It's just a bunch of thieves living together. (laughs) Martin Luther said, if everyone who was a thief got hung, we'd run out of rope and we'd have to use our belts. He said, if everyone was hung, we wouldn't have anybody to hang anybody because everyone's a thief. He goes, only the obvious thieves get punished to make everybody else feel better. You say, well, that guy robbed a bank. He needs to go to jail, so I don't have to feel so bad about stealing time from my boss. I didn't report everything on my taxes. Well, the government stole from me. You shall not steal. And can you imagine a society that Israel should have been, where there's fair labor practices, where people worked hard and got paid for it, where you could leave your doors unlocked, where you could trust the government? Can you imagine what that would have looked like to the rest of the world? How that would have shown God's image? And they would have said, I want to worship a God who does that, who is like that. But it continues. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is not you shall not lie. It's bigger than that. Lying means saying something that's not true. Bearing false witness is bigger because it it talks about someone's character. You see, if they're in the image of God, then their character needs to be protected. Because that's what God does about his own character. You remember why God went down to Egypt and did all of this? Because people were saying, who is the Lord that we should serve him? I don't know Jehovah. I don't know Yahweh. He's nobody to me. And God says, no, that's my name. Don't take my name in vain. Don't demean my character. And if you do, I'll punish you. And so image bearers have some of that weight to their name. So when you devalue someone's name, you're going against the way God planned the world to be. And it's not just lying about people. Luther goes as far to say that if you say something that you know to be true but can't prove, you're bearing false witness. He said, if you know it to be true, then bring it to the public. And if you say, well, I can't prove it, then you shouldn't have said it to begin with. Are you building people up or are you tearing them down? Bearing false witness is taking people's reputation down. Bearing true witness is honoring people's name until you know for a fact and everyone else knows for a fact that it shouldn't be that way. So the word here, bear false witness, primarily is talking about a court of of justice. See, back then, witnesses were the key to everything. They didn't have DNA evidence. So if you bore a false witness, you would put people in jail. And who do you bear false witness against? Those who have the least power over you. You don't bear false witness against people who have power over you because you need them. And so you create a system of injustice when you don't follow this command, of catering to power, of bowing to power and letting people who are oppressed go their own way. That's what stereotypes do. 
If you're guilty of stereotyping, that's what you're doing here. You're putting a witness on a person that makes them look like less, that causes them problems, that brings injustice to them. Can you imagine an entire society that Israel is supposed to be where everyone kept their mouth shut? Where if they had a real problem, they went to the right people about it? That rumors and gossip weren't allowed? where character mattered and you protected people's character. See, just like murder, it wasn't just don't kill people. It was also protect life. So here, bear false witness. It's not just don't defame character. It's also protect character. Because God protects character. He protects his own, and he reveals everything that's true and false about people. He brings it all out. He doesn't deal in suspicion. He doesn't deal in rumor. He doesn't deal in accusations. And it shows the rest of the world that words are powerful. God believes that words are powerful. So he says here, watch your mouth. Words are powerful. And then he's going to say, and I'm going to send you witnesses that are going to reveal things about me. They need to be truthful witnesses. They need to be faithful witnesses. That's what's important to God. So when we get the Bible, the Bible is a collection of witnesses. And it's built on the foundation that God's witnesses never bear false witness. That's important. And that's what Israel was supposed to show everyone. So we get to the last one, which is different than the rest. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. But why not? If you covet your neighbor's house, does he still have his house? Yeah, I mean, duh. You haven't haven't stolen it yet. That's stealing. So you don't break the stealing commandment, but you do break the coveting. Still have their house. Still have, and so when he goes through this list, he's not limiting it. He's sort of looking around. He's saying, don't steal their house, and don't steal their wife, don't steal their workers, don't steal their stuff. Basically, just don't steal anything. Don't covet anything. Why not? That's all just inside. There's no, no harm. Where's the violation? They still have all of that. You haven't taken it from them. You see, you are in the image of God. And when you covet other stuff, you're saying that stuff is worth the devotion of my heart. And God says, no, you're not in the image of a house. Don't devote yourself to a house. You devote yourself to God because you're in the image of God. What you set your heart on is what you worship. And what he's saying here is to be the image of God is to have a heart that worships God. You see how much more comprehensive this last one is? This last one goes all the way to the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't covet. Don't let your heart seek a path that will eventually lead to the rest of them. But some of us are like, well, we're not going to actually steal. We're just going to think about it. We're not going to commit adultery. We're just going to wish we could. We're not going to kill, but we're going to wish we could kill them and take their stuff. See, coveting is about the heart. They were supposed to show the world that God cares about the source of virtue, not just actions. You were to go to Israel at this time and say, Israelites, your commandment says you don't just have to do the right thing. You have to feel the right thing. You have to want the right thing. That's part of the law. Part of the law to want the right thing. Why? Because God cares about your heart. Israel was supposed to teach the world that God wants a personal relationship with you. He doesn't want you to just do the right thing. 
He wants your heart. You see, that's what Jesus says. What is the greatest commandment? Love God. Second greatest, love your neighbor. Not just don't steal from your neighbor, but love them. Love is a much harder thing to do, isn't it? It's much harder to love someone than to not kill them. It's much harder to love them than to not just steal from them. Love is an active word. It does things for people. That's what, it's, that's what Jesus is saying about the Ten Commandments. It's about caring for your neighbor. Just to look at Matthew chapter 7, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, I have, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, kept the law in your name, did good stuff for you? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you you who practice lawlessness. Does it sound like they were practicing lawlessness? Looks like they were practicing faith. Looks like they were prophesying in his name and casting out demons and doing good things in his name. He said, yes, but your heart was breaking the law. That's your status. It's not what you did, it's what your heart wanted to do. See, the Ten Commandments are not a guide to life because... They condemn you by saying, when you think you can keep them, now check your heart. Did you want to keep them? If you didn't want to keep them, you broke them. So Jesus in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, and 7, 5, 6, and 7, he tells the Pharisees, he says, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness, your good works, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now just the background, the Pharisees kept all the law. They didn't steal. They did everything right. So when they heard that, there was no higher standard to look at than the Pharisees. But he said, unless it exceeds the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What was wrong with the Pharisees? Nothing on the outside. That's important to understand. The Pharisees, they they look great on the outside. Their heart was bad. And so what Jesus is saying is, unless your heart is better than the people who act right, you're going to hell. Your heart. Do everything right, great. But if your heart's wrong, if your intentions are wrong, you're done. You have heard it said, heard that it was said of those old, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of a judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka or, or insults him shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. You say, I've never killed anybody. Have you ever been mad at somebody? Your heart wanted to kill them. You just couldn't get away with it. You just weren't willing to pay the consequences. The murderer and the person who speaks poorly of other people get the same judgment. When you got mad at someone for the wrong reason, you broke the Ten Commandments like a murderer. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what the penalty for adultery is? Death. You just look at a woman the wrong way, death. That's what Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Fair practice, justice, not taking what's not yours. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, 
And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Why? See, Jesus is being subversive here. He's saying, love your neighbors, hate your enemy. But then he says, you don't get it. They're all your neighbor. Your enemies are your neighbor. Your enemies are your neighbor. You have to love them too. The person who curses you, the person who hurts you, the person who violates you is your neighbor. So you have to love them. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For what does the Father in heaven do? How does he treat people who curse him? For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The good Samaritan. He said, here's someone from another country. Here's someone who doesn't live right. What should you do with that person? You see, when we ask who is our neighbor, we're trying to limit it. Who can we say is not our neighbor? Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that. They're all your neighbor. Arbitrary lines in the sand, don't make them not your neighbor. Neighborhoods, don't make them not your neighbor. Bad moral choices, don't make them not your neighbor. They are your neighbor. Whether they live on the other side of the border, whether they live on the other side of the tracks, whether they spend all their money on dumb stuff, whether they hurt you, they're your neighbor. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that we're in trouble. Because last time I checked myself, I'm pretty much breaking all the Ten Commandments. So let's remember the debate about whether we should put Ten Commandments in schools. It's just a condemnation. You can't keep the Ten Commandments. And if you're not a Christian, you don't even want to keep them because you don't even respect that God is overall. But Christians can't keep them either. No one can keep them. You see, when Jesus gave this to the Pharisees, he wasn't teaching them how to keep the law. The story of the Good Samaritan is not how to be a Good Samaritan. It's to say, you are not the Good Samaritan. And you never can be. Because you can never love your neighbor like you're supposed to. Because your heart is selfish and idolatrous. And it looks out for number one. Now, it may expand number one to be your family. Maybe your country. We're definitely putting the limits there. And God says, you're condemned. The law condemns you. Your actions aren't good enough. God wants your internal heart. He wants you to love. And if you don't love, you're in danger of hellfire. So what's God's answer? He says, fine, you'll never keep it. Not a single person will keep it. So what will I do? Jesus says, I'll love my neighbor. See, the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, is Jesus loving his neighbor. Now, if there was ever anyone who wasn't a neighbor of someone in heaven, it's Jesus and people. Talk about a boundary. Jesus is in heaven. Everyone else is on earth. That's a big divide. But Jesus says, no, I'll love my neighbor. I'll come to earth to actively seek out the good of people. So he loved his neighbor. But that doesn't help us, does it? Because we know Jesus is perfect. We need to do something about our problems because God says, love your neighbor. And so Jesus says, fine, I'll love your neighbor for you. I'll come down and love your neighbor for you. You see, the cross is about substitution. It's not just about examples of love. 
It's about Jesus saying, you can't love your neighbor, so I'll do it. But someone still has to pay for the violation. So he says, I'll love your neighbor for you, and I'll be a hateful idolater like you are. Now, Jesus never sinned, but it said he was made to be sin for us. He was made to be hateful for us. He was made to be a thief, a murderer, an adulterer. Isn't it ironic that Jesus was crucified between two thieves? Two men who broke the Ten Commandments explicitly and openly, and Jesus is crucified between them. What's the message there? Jesus was a thief. There were three thieves. There were three murderers. You see how terrible the cross was? It was Jesus saying, I'll take all of those things and I'll be that person. I'll have it put on top of me and I'll die because that's what happens to those kind of people. And we then get to say, but not us? I don't have to love my neighbor? No, you don't have to love your neighbor anymore. Jesus loved him for you. And what the cross does, it says, look at the neighbor you've got who will love you and take your sins from you, will make you a perfect law abider, will make you a perfect loving neighbor by his work. If you accept Christ, you've kept the Ten Commandments. If you reject Christ, you've broken them all. Now, what does that leave us? It leaves us with a decision. What are you going to do with Christ? Not are you going to keep the Ten Commandments. Hopefully you've seen by now you can't keep them and you've already broken them. What will you do with Christ? He died for your sins. He died for your law-breaking. But if you have accepted Christ, here's the beauty. He didn't just take your sins away. He also gave you the ability to keep the Ten Commandments. You see, what was the problem with the Ten Commandments? They didn't have a heart that loved their neighbor. But you know what the new covenant promises? Jesus died to give you a new heart. So what do the Ten Commandments have to do with Christians? We now have the resources and the heart to love our neighbor. You find a Christian who doesn't love their neighbor, I'm not sure they're a Christian. Because Christians have a heart to love. Given to them by Christ. So now we go back to the Ten Commandments, free of them, under no condemnation, and we find ourselves saying, I want to do these. I now want to love my neighbor, just like Jesus loved me. That's what Christianity is. It's not about keeping the rules. That was the old covenant. That didn't work. The new covenant is about love. Loving God, loving our neighbor, because he first loved us. So I ask you now, do you love your neighbor? And if the answer is no, you've got one choice. Repent of your sin and trust Christ. And if you've done that, here's your way forward. Here's the kind of life you should want. God wants your heart, and he provided Christ to get it. Let's pray.